0: The following podcast is a member of the Pokecasters Network. Pokecasters Network, supporting Pokemon content creators, their shows, and the community of Pokemon fans. To find out more, check out pokecastersnetwork.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook. Welcome to the Pokepress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. In this episode, Anne from Pikachu Podcast drops by to discuss the music of Pokémon Ranger for the Nintendo DS. This final side game of Generation 3 is best known for its touchscreen mechanics, but we managed to get quite a bit out of its varied soundtrack. To find out what we thought of the game itself, and hear even more about audio cassettes, be sure to listen after the outro. Thanks. Hi, folks. Steven here. I'm on the phone with Anne from PQD Podcast. And in our continuing series of Pokémon side game music discussions, we've reached the last side game of the Ruby and Sapphire, or third generation. This is Pokémon Ranger for the Nintendo DS. There is technically a very small amount of Generation 4 content, but it was released before the Diamond and Pearl games were released. So it is a third generation side game, at least by our measure. So for those of you who aren't familiar with this particular game, um, it is a touchscreen-based DS game. It makes heavy use of the touchscreen, actually. Let's see. It was uh, released in 2006 in most territories, which was released in Japan uh, in March of 2006, uh, North America in October of 2006, and Australia in December of 2006. Europe, it took until early 2007 in April. And in case you're curious, I'm sure a lot of you remember, there is a somewhat loose movie tie into this, the Pokemon Ranger uh, Manaphy in the Temple of the Sea. I forget exactly which is the, which name there, but, uh, in case you're wondering, in Japan, that, uh, released in the summer of 2006, so obviously a couple of months after this game came out. So it was sort of a, a loose promotional vehicle for that movie as well. Um, If you want a copy of these games, you can, of course, buy them used. But if you do have a Wii U, they were all released on the Virtual Console. I know they came out in 2016, if I remember correctly, in the North American Virtual Console with other dates in other regions. But um, with those dates out of the way, let's kind of talk about the original experience we had. And did you play this game back in the day? What was it like for you?
1: I did. I did play it. I owned it for a while. I eventually... Sold it to basically get money for new games. Uh, we might talk about why as we talk about <laughs> overall impressions of the gameplay later. but yeah, i have I have played this game and and both loved and was frustrated by it in turn.
0: Yeah, if you've played the later Ranger games in the series, uh, you may notice they made some pretty substantial mechanical changes that we'll talk about in our bonus segment. I know for a fact that I got this for Christmas of 2006. Uh, It actually was kind of a little bit extra special. Um, In my family, at least through when me and my sister were in uh, growing up and then all the way through when we were in college, we got to open up one present the night before Christmas um, as sort of a uh an extra thing and i'm almost certain this is the one i i got that year i got to open the night before christmas uh, all the rest of the stuff was of course the actual day of christmas so this has a little bit uh, of an extra memory for there but i do know for a fact i did not beat this game when it originally came out i did beat it on the wii u virtual console a couple of weeks ago and i think that might be the only way i would ever beat it uh, we'll talk more about that later but I remember the game and you know it didn't leave even though I never finished it, it didn't leave it a sour enough taste in my mouth that I skipped the sequels. I did play those. We'll talk about those uh, maybe later this year, but definitely into next year when we get to them. But uh, it was it was okay. I think it showed promise. I wasn't totally enthralled by it. I, I felt it had some definite issues. But uh Setting aside our feelings about the game, uh, emotionally or physically when we first play it, let's kind of talk about the production. This game was produced by two companies, both of which should be pretty familiar. One of them is HAL, which is actually best known for the Kirby series. Um, I suspect that one of the reasons they worked on this is that some of the code and our other stuff is brought in from Kirby's Canvas Curse, which has a similar drawing mechanic that's used in that game. Of course, Hal is no stranger to Pokemon. They worked or supervised some of the, a lot of the stuff from the N64 slash Game Boy, Game Boy Color side game era. So they were involved with stuff like Pokemon Snap, Pokemon Stadium to varying degrees, even Hey, You Pikachu, they had a bit of a hand in, I think. Creatures Inc. is, I'm sure, I mean, they've been involved with Pokemon since the beginning. They were originally founded as a company called Ape Inc., and had some involvement with a number of things, notably the Earthbounder Mother series for the first two installments of that. They eventually got their name changed, and since then they've they've worked on a variety. Uh, normally, they do a lot of stuff with the Pokemon trading card game, but in this case, they were actually developers of an actual video game. And they've worked on a few other things. I think the uh, the Game Detective Pikachu was also in their purview. They do a lot of modeling work. And um, did you have any other observations on these two companies? They're they're pretty well known here, but like I said, I did want to throw a few things out there.
1: Yeah, as well, like I said, they're well known. We've talked about some of them a bit. Yeah, no, I don't have much to add. All right. I'm curious where they got the name Ape. Um,
0: yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they changed it because of a trademark issue or something like that. That can happen sometimes too. True. But uh, we also know who worked on the music for this one. We have two names. There's Takuto Kitsuda and Kinta Sato. Now, one of these folks we actually have a fair bit of information on, and that's uh, Takuto. Speaking of the Earthbounder Mother series, apparently he, one of his earlier works was the, um, he worked on Mother 3, but not the Mother 3. Well, we never got it here in the States, which would have been like Earthbound 2 or whatever. This was the original N64 disk drive mother game that they eventually scrapped and eventually morphed uh, significantly into the Game Boy Advance game that actually came out. Uh, As far as Pokemon, I have down that he worked on some of the stuff for the e-cards. These were the cards released late into the second and early in the third generation that had the little barcodes that you could scan on the e-reader. Um, he's credited on Heart, Gold, Soul, Silver, and more recently he is has uh, is credited, I believe, on music for the Detective Pikachu game, which has a distinct soundtrack from the Detective Pikachu movie, I should point out. I don't think there's much of any overlap there. Um, King to Sato, not so lucky there. Not Doesn't really have too many other credits besides this game. There's a game design credit for something called Way of the Samurai 3, but couldn't find much else there and uh what did you find on on these composers
1: um i have not much more than what you have they're mostly known by their pokemon credits they're not terribly public like unlike some of the previous people we've talked about i couldn't even find, i couldn't even dig up their old twitter accounts so yeah they're just quietly doing their thing. Um I did notice in the credits there is a special uh thanks to Hirokazu Tanaka who we've we've talked about before. I don't know if that is implies that maybe he had some influence on the soundtrack or at least you know they built off rift off of previous things he's composed perhaps. Um but I thought that was interesting to mention.
0: Well, he is I forget if he's the I think his role has changed a little bit. He moved over to Creatures, Inc. around the time he started doing music for the uh, Japanese version of the Pokemon anime because previously he had worked at Nintendo and they uh, wouldn't allow him to do kind of both. So he kind of moved over to Creatures and he does plenty of non-musical stuff there. And, you know, back when we had major Pokemon tournaments, you'd see him at Worlds if you knew where to look, and in one of the opening ceremonies and stuff. I'm not sure that he had anything specifically musically to do. I think that has kind of waned as time has gone on, but he he is like, I forget if he's the chairperson or the president or what exactly there. He still does occasionally do music stuff. But it's not surprising to see his name in there since this is a Creatures co-developed game. Okay, well, let's kind of talk about the overall style of this game. And if I had to describe that overall style, it, it seems like it's very much a marching band with a lot of brass and woodwinds type stuff. There is a fair amount of diversity. In fact, I actually think the songs that we've picked out for this discussion actually kind of stray away from that a fair bit, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> um, but a lot of the overworld music and stuff is is based around that motif. And would you kind of agree with that?
1: Yeah, I would agree. It's um. A lot of it is just, you know, very big and punchy and, like, not necessarily dramatic, but kind of just big, and a lot of the tracks we picked are the ones that kind of veer off the beaten path a bit. I did really appreciate that there's a lot of varied instruments. I I believe they all sound very, like, synth and sampled instruments, but, like, there is definitely not just... One particular flavor. Like there is a whole orchestra of um, digital sounds. And that I thought was very interesting. It feels a little less um, full and rich than maybe some of the other scores we talked about, but like still is using a wide contingent and a wide variety of sounds. And that's very cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Despite my statement earlier that I tried to narrow it down to a sentence, that does describe a good chunk of the music in this game, it by no means describes everything in it. But sort of like a lot of the ranger themes do fit into that marching band type of quality uh, with with brass and woodwinds, the the music that is specific to the ranger characters. Um, Some of the more exotic locations are are a little bit, are are where things get a little bit, like you said, off the beaten path. All right, well, we did... What we usually do, we each picked out three songs from this game. The ones I picked are the Olive Jungle, the Panula Cave. I'm not entirely sure I pronounced that. Apparently that is an actual real word, which is apparently some type of moth or something. We looked that up. And then Ending Story. Now, technically speaking, a lot of these are not official titles because there is no official soundtrack, as with most Pokémon side games. Um, but hopefully that gives you enough idea. And... What tracks did you pick?
1: I picked the Fiore Temple Peak, uh, Drowsy Man, and Saving.
0: All right. Well, uh, the way I have these laid out looks like I'm going first this time. So the first one I picked, we try to go loosely in chronological order within the game, although that's not always possible, is the Olive Jungle. And what really caught my attention about this track is it's, it's got two very distinct seg, uh, sections in there. We had sort of talked about a little bit of that with the, uh, Pokemon Coliseum and Gale of Darkness, how some of the stuff there has, has distinct sections. This one really does that. There's the first part, which is maybe more what you would expect from a, a jungle music track, um, where it's very busy. There are a lot of, they, they fit together for the most part but very much uh something-might-jump-out-at-you-at-any-time type of jungle feel to it. And then there's a second part where it goes into this uh, piano, I guess with a little bit of trilling. You can't really trill on a piano the same way you would on some other instruments, but it's got this grand scale as if you're looking over a big valley or something. I know I kind of covered both parts there. And what were your kind of thoughts on this one?
1: Um. Yeah, I, I really... Well, I'm here for the bongos. Like, I really quite liked that, you know, it's a stereotypical jungle y vibe to use that instrument, but I, I really quite liked them. And I also liked that they kind of blended in some little chiptune y trills in that first part, which is kind of, again, not what you'd expect for a jungle. So, like, they kind of combined like some very obvious instrument choices and some less, less so choices and the whole thing kind of creates a a vibe that's you know very fun and exciting and tropical but also a a little bit of danger maybe or a little bit unsettling and then the second part got very interesting I like that it took you into different places over you know it's kind of just a bit more I don't know if grand is the right word but like a little softer like we're not having the the bopping jungle time where but we're still experiencing a different side of the jungle
0: Yeah, that's that's definitely interesting. With the first part, I actually, it did kind of remind me of something. It reminded me of the uh, music that's used for, like, the Bowser spaces in the original Mario Party. Um, Melodically, it is different, but the instrumentation actually kind of reminds me there. But when it got, got to the second part, at first I had to really listen to it because I was like whoa, wait, is this the same track? Did I switch areas at, at a certain time? Because I thought this might be for a different part of the same area or something. But it just loops back and forth, which is kind of interesting. Um, one other thing we should mention with this track is that there's about three or four unused tracks in this game that people found by digging through the, uh, this, the, the, the game files and whatnot. And there's actually what is sort of called a jungle village track. Uh, since it's an unused track, it's obviously very... <laughs> unofficial. I don't think we have any details on what happens here, but normally the jungle is just outside of a place called, I think it's what, Summerland or something like that? And um, if you listen to this unused track, it shares its uh, some of its stuff with the second part of this Olive Jungle track, which strongly suggests that the two are related. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering, based on that, was there a different city adjacent to this jungle originally? Was there going to be another city hidden inside the jungle on a side path or something? Anne, any thoughts in that area?
1: I mean, it very well could be. That's interesting to think about. I I would have loved that, another city to play in. But, yeah, it kind of does suggest something something to that degree.
0: Yeah, I, I didn't do it. Um, I couldn't find any, um, like articles or stuff like that. It was obviously cut at some time in development or swapped for the more touristy uh, Summerland place. Mm-hmm. But, um, all right, well, Anne, let's talk about your first track. It's actually one of the shortest tracks we've ever talked about, although it can technically go on for a while, potentially, not usually, <laughs> though. This is the <laughs> the saving track, and uh, it's a little more substantial than what we've seen in other Pokemon games. Why don't you describe this track a little bit and what made you choose it?
1: Yeah, so when I choose these tracks, I, I typically don't go for what my memories of them are. I like just kind of listen to the whole thing and just see what hits me. And for some reason, when I came across "Saving," it really got to me. It's it's a very soothing track. Through this this series, I'm starting to feel like I have a thing for soft synth instrumental bells. There's a lot of little ar- arpeggiation kind of underneath the melody, which is really quite cool. And I feel like it's interesting that they decided to make this track, this loop, as long as it is, and and have it be a full musical track for a process in the game of just saving your game that very often is just like a sound effect or something. So I, I thought it was just, yeah, really pretty. And I found myself wanting it to go on longer or wanting it to, you know, develop into a full fledged song. I thought it was very involved for something that most people don't pay a ton of attention to in, you know, the music of a game.
0: Yeah, like the main series Pokemon games, and I think most of the side games as well, either don't have any particular sound for saving, or it's just like a text box advancing. I I, I can hear the, so- the little uh, ditty that goes on in like the original games, Um, that indicates your save was successful. But this is something a little bit different. It is something. uh, Through the the things I have, there's a little bit of, I guess, a music box sound at the very beginning, and then it's followed by a little bit of a swaying quality, I think, with the rest of it until the save actually finishes. But, yeah, just kind of structurally speaking, it is a little different in that it does interrupt whatever music is playing at the time in whatever area you're in, which is not something we usually see First of all, in, in games a lot. In fact, a lot of games, they have an auto-save, so like, you don't even hear anything. You just see the word saving at the bottom of the screen these days. This one, they really do call it out. I'm not sure if they were, how much intention there was in there uh, or how that came about, but it, it was something I really wanted to note. And and this song, like a couple others, is, is reused in the later Ranger games, so I thought, thought that was another good reason to bring it up there. A- anything else you wanted to say about it, Anne?
1: Um, yeah, just I agree. like who it's hard to tell what the thought process was for making this choice, but it is definitely a choice. and a, and as I've always said, I, I support strong choices. and like I said, it's just a beautiful little surprising track.
0: We're a Miracle wasn't written or rewritten to work with Pokey on the first movie. And if for some reason you don't believe me on that, I do have an email from one of the folks behind the song. In any event, despite its unrelated origins, it seems to do a great job matching up with the film. But why is that? There's the obvious stuff, like references to a storm and tears early in the piece, and some later lyrics that provide a good summary of the relationship between Ash and Pikachu. However, there's another possible explanation. We're a Miracle definitely features some of Christina's more aggressive vocal qualities. Normally this gives her songs a sensual vibe, but here it has the benefit of making her sound a bit more like, well, you know. Anyway, if you'd like to hear a more in-depth analysis of this song, as well as its Japanese equivalent, Together with the Wind, a few years ago I recorded a discussion with Anne from PPP Podcast, and you should find the link in the episode description. Thanks. Okay, well, let's go on to my second track. This is uh, Panula. I, I hope if I keep pronouncing it different ways, I'll eventually get it right. If anyone does know the correct pronunciation, feel free to toss that in the chat or in a comment. But this is a cave, and it's not the first cave you go through. This is one you go through later in the game that is covered in ice. Um, and, you know, with ice and snow segments within games, there are a couple different ways you can go. This one I had said had kind of a a skating vibe with the way the the sound goes, which you know it's it's not like it, it's definitely not a holiday type of track. It's more of I guess kind of a lonely like moving through a, a city in the middle of winter. It's also to me not quite the same as some of the stuff we get in the Crown Tundra DLC, which is sort of another major point of comparison for this. I don't know. Anne, what were your kind of thoughts on uh, sort of this direction they went to with the ice level?
1: Well, I kind of thought it felt like with the flute melody, like just a little bit jazzy um, and then would be contrasted because there's like the little flute melody and then a very percussive answering and kind of a back and forth for some of the track. Um, Yeah, I, I don't know if I got the same vibe you did off of it, but I definitely felt it was an interesting choice because I it doesn't necessarily evoke the stereotypical wintery sort of feelings but yeah maybe walking through a city in winter is a way to describe it or but it definitely feels like I am in investigating something and kind of searching through a cave and like there's that kind of the high flute noise and then the low That comes after. So it definitely has a bit of an exploration kind of vibe and an unknown vibe to it for me.
0: Yeah, I'm not saying it's inappropriate or anything. I think it makes a certain amount of sense that it goes in a different direction than, you know, sort of the holiday direction or (laughs) even the, like I said, in the crown tundra. So I kind of do like this. Some of the comments I read on this, though, that although this track is relatively peaceful, there are a lot of noisy, disruptive Pokemon in this area of the game. Some (laughs) that move around quite quickly. So it is a little bit of a a jarring transition or whatever you want to say there. So... I'm not sure. If that was your experience, I mean, I did play through this game, and I kind of have to agree with that, so not sure if you if that brought up anything for you, Anne.
1: Well, I'd kind of forgotten, but now that you mention it, like, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, so there, there's even, a, it has to fit a lot of different stuff that's in there, too. There's a segment where you're sort of automatically moving down, and you have to avoid holes to get to somewhere in there and, and stuff, and it has to fit all of that as well as things where you're searching out certain Pokemon to return them to their their group like there's a you have to get like a, a swine up or something like that. but and the the skating was sort of the part I wanted to get in there is that there is a bit a little bit of a gliding sound mm-hmm. effect which I guess maybe goes for that slide portion there. Okay and let's talk about your second song. This is the Fiore Temple peak. Fiore, by the way, is the name of the region where this game takes place. This this is an interesting one. I can I get some ideas of why you picked it. Uh, why don't you fill us in?
1: Yeah, well, it just um, there's two tracks: the Fiore Temple and the Fiore Temple Peak, and they're so very completely different from one another. Um, but to describe this song, like it, it's very organ heavy. That's the primary instrument in this track, and like these giant chords. And just add a level of seriousness to it that I thought was very interesting. And it, it's somehow not necessarily evocative of being on a mountain a peak or like, you know, kind of what I expected from it. But it's very grand and it's very lofty. And it's yeah. And I, I don't remember I don't recall an organ being used at any other point in the soundtrack. So I, I it kind of stood out to me in that way as well. I might be wrong, but I don't recall.
0: You are a little bit wrong. Okay, the song itself, a shortened, a shorter version of it that's missing a section or two, is used earlier in the game uh, when you're going through one of the one of the enemy bases. Because this is this particular version of the song is you're confronting the uh, agitator or uh, evil character of this game when you go. Uh, I believe his name is. Uh, uh, Gorder or something like that? I forget exactly how it's how it's pronounced. Um,
1: oh, right. So it, we're following on his theme rather than it being a location theme. I see what's it's going on. It sort of is.
0: It's sort of the theme for the entire uh, organization.
1: Mm.
0: It's kind of interesting. We have not mentioned the evil team yet, the Go Rock squad that is in this game yet, but uh, their leader, uh, so to speak, uh, you, you see him early in the game, but you meet up with him for the final confrontation here. Sorry, spoiler. Um... And uh to be honest the, the organ aspect of it reminds me of a couple things. Uh I put down the word menacing rather than evil but hmm. first of all it reminds me a couple uh discussions ago when we did our insert a pokemon song into the actual movie we talked about I am a collector from the Japanese yes. version of the second pokemon movie and this has a a little bit of that vibe to it although I think it's a little more old-school menacing organ than Android Webber Phantom of the Opera. Um, And it's also maybe got a little bit of um, organ themes from various RPGs or even like the Castlevania series or stuff like that. It's not as dark as it could be, especially given sort of the uh, tone of the overall game. But um, that's sort of how it presents itself. Uh, Any any follow-ups to that, Anne?
1: Um, well, just having this discussion, it kind of makes me think, like, how often in a movie or a piece of media, the bad guy plays the organ. Um, like, I'm thinking, like, Barbosa from the Pirates movies, and, like, you brought a Phantom of the Opera. Like, like, it's just the organ for some reason just feels like it's often associated with the, the villain or, or at least the misunderstood, character. Uh, characters. Very rarely the, it's it's not usually something that you know evokes the plucky young heroine or the good guys. The organ tends to be something that the the villains are more associated with. When you hear those sounds, it's big it's dramatic. It's the bad guys arrived. So that's an interesting I don't know shade to this. I guess.
0: Yeah. Insert Ganondorf. Uh, I think what's it's Ocarina of Time where he's playing an organ. There might be other Zelda games yeah. as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But uh, reference here. So definitely well-worn well, well worn, both within video games and film and probably some other things as well. But yeah, it basically leads you into sort of the final confrontation where you have to capture some very difficult Pokémon to uh, complete the game. And speaking of completing the game, let's go on to my third song that I've picked here. This is the ending story. Now, there's a couple parts to the ending uh, there's this part, there's a part where all the heroes come together, and of course there's the end credits. This is sort of the first part of that, where we have kind of spoiled a little bit of the ending. I'll try not to say too much here, but there's a, one of the mentor characters in the game comes across the villain character who has fled the scene of the final battle. And they're interacting with, the, basically the the sort of animating factor for the villain in this game is that he has a grudge uh, against uh, the mentor character um, in, in the game that goes a long way back. And um, as a result, what happens there is they they have a bit of an exchange there. And this track kind of reflects that. It's, it's a solo piano, and it's obviously a piano is a two-handed instrument where usually the left hand is playing in the lower register, and the right hand is playing in the upper register, if I remember that correctly. hope I didn't get that backwards, otherwise it's because that's really sad if I did. But, uh, although the, the two parts fit together, they are decidedly separate. They don't join up. They don't really meet with one another. And I think that's sort of fitting for the exchange where the defeated villain is sort of like fairly unrepentant, um, and, Sort of trying to, I guess, move on from there, despite all the all the problems he caused in in the game, which is um, kind of interesting. I don't know, Anne. What did what did you
1: think of this track? Um, I don't know if I quite picked out the same metaphor you did, but that's really quite beautiful. Um, but yeah, it's just it's a very emotional track. It you can tell that this track is something a little bit different and special from some of the other loops that. Um, it, it feels like this is a piano piece that's telling a story, um, and, and I really love that about it.
0: Yeah, There's also a, a very contemplative aspect to it, especially since these are two older characters mm-hmm. within the games, two, two that have a history there that are, you know, f- for various reasons. There's, there's 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 an in-story reason that it makes sense that they are passing by each other, so it's not as if it's coming out of nowhere. So that does kind of makes sense. Uh any other thoughts on this one?
1: Uh no, I think that that does it. It's it's just very lovely.
0: Well, there is a post game in here uh in, in this game. There's actually a, not as much as there would be in some of the other ones, but there's definitely some post game stuff you can go through. One of those uh definitely has its own music track. It's called The Drowsy Man. Um and this is your third pick. Uh what kind of stood out here?
1: Okay, so yeah, the drowsy man, (laughs) uh, the guy who lets you relive your most memorable capture, dude, um, he, like, I really just thought there was something kind of unique about this track. There's a lot um, going on, kind of it's... It sounds like a very soft and you're getting sleepy type sound. And then there's like a clarinet or something, um, some wind instrument, some very low wind instrument notes going on underneath as just an undercurrent um, that keeps you just a little bit unsettled. So it's very, it's got a very hypnotic feel to it. Kind of, you kind of get a sense of like a, a spiral or being slowly taken over or something so I, I just thought it was a very clever little piece of instrumentation there.
0: Yeah, uh, going back to what I said about the saving uh, music, this has a swing quality, but a very different vibe going through it. <laughs> uh, definitely much more hypnotic, a little bit uh, confusing and stuff like that. But for the the game mechanic where they're having you uh, giving you an opportunity to rebattle some stuff that you did earlier that would otherwise not be possible giving a sort of an in universe explanation for why that's happening is um I think an an appropriate track there. I don't know that they've done much of anything else. I mean Drowsy itself is elsewhere in the game as a capturable Pokémon that you can use for assist, but this is a very specific character who has a couple Drowsy who is used as a bit of a I don't know, plot device probably isn't quite the right word, but sort of an in-universe explanation for for something there, which Mm. is is always kind of interesting. Yeah. Okay, well, why don't we give our overall opinion on the music for this game? So what I put down for this is it's not as, you know, last time around we did the original Pokemon Mystery Dungeon games, uh, Red Rescue Team, Blue Rescue Team, and... That is a hard standard to live up to. Um, even the original ones in there had some pretty well-made things. But uh, I still found this one to be fitting. It has some good variety. Like I said, despite my attempt to narrow it down to one sentence, which I kind of regret a little bit. Um, <laughs> but it's generally well-composed. Uh, they knew what they were doing um, and what they were going for, and they more or less executed on that. And what are your sort of thoughts there?
1: Um, overall, it's very nice. Like, there are a lot of tracks on here that I would put on, like, a playlist of game music. There's something about it that—about the sound, it like, just the general sound itself that feels very game-like, vid- like, video game quotes, video game music— Um, I think that comes a lot from the fact that I do believe these are all synth instruments, that the orchestration doesn't feel as full and lush as, say, you actually had like an, an orchestral rendering of these tracks. But there's so much interesting little things going on in the score, like both from little notes and melodies and trills, the choices of instruments, that i really think um it's a disservice not to um recognize the talent in, in creating it i would love to just listen to say an orchestral rendering with like a live a live orchestra of some of these tracks cuz i feel like i feel like they could be more than they are but like there is definitely a lot of um well thought out choices going into this composition
0: yeah, so certainly not a bad effort. Uh, I think it, it does have a couple standout tracks. So I definitely a thumbs up from me on this. It may not be as... It has some difficult things to live up to, like I said. Uh, it's not quite up there with the Mystery Dungeon games, but good work, and it it works well for for this particular game. All right, well, time to move on to some feedback from some stuff that I recently posted uh, as we're recording this to my channel. So, uh few weeks ago before we recorded this, I unboxed what, to the best of my knowledge, is the only Japanese official Pokemon music cassette. So this is uh, the Together with the Wind single. Now, if you're for some reason not familiar with that, Together with the Wind is the Japanese ending theme of the first Pokemon movie, Mewtwo Strikes Back. And yes, Kasingle is not a word I made up. It is the term usually for a single song on each side cassette, although this has two on each side. There are, uh, well, let's see, the only other one I can think of in the Pokemon realm is on the English side, there is a Kasingle for Don't Say You Love Me. But this, so far as I know, is the only Japanese one. Uh, One of our our good friends, uh, Lapras GD... Um, Also picked up a copy of this a ways back on, let's see, on Yahoo Auctions, which tends to be more popular in Japan. And uh, as far as that individual knows, it is the only Japanese uh, Pokémon cassette release. Not sure why. I mean, cassettes were kind of fading out uh, by that time, regardless of territory. It is maybe a little bit surprising. I don't know of one for Aim to be a Pokémon Master, um, which would have been around the same time, of course. Cassettes definitely existed in Japan. Anne, do you have – you spent more time in Japan than I did, although it was well after cassettes had had their day. Yeah. But do you have any any thoughts on just the – why this might be the only one?
1: I mean, most of – basically everything I'm going to say is speculation based on things I actually saw. But, like, yeah, I spent a lot of time um, when I was in Japan, you know, Cassettes had basically gone the way of the world. They were not front and center in the stores. I spent a lot of time digging through like old bargain bins and like the shops, the sketchy shops and bodegas under the train tracks and stuff, where like you can find all the old relics. I honestly don't remember seeing a single cassette tape in any of those like little quarter quarter bins of you know bygone thrift store type music, which I think suggests to me again only my observation that you know probably cds were very early adopted and and certainly knowing how japan um when a single is released like it's a big deal like the packaging of a single a a cd single and like the stuff that comes with it like it suggests to me that like when that the cd technology was not only very quickly adopted but they very quickly figured out how to make that special. And knowing my American, or what rather my Canadian experience of, like, I bought cassette tapes rather than CDs for the longest time because they were cheaper. And, like, I got, like, we were noticing, like, Totally Pokemon had a cassette tape that I owned. Like, for the long, as long as I could hold out to buy cassette tapes rather than CDs I did for that reason because I I was a little broke girl but it's knowing how how Japan like has just excelled at like the marketing of CDs and singles and especially like a like they can often persuade fans to buy several different versions of a single and you know like collect all four of basically the same single, depending on how they're packaged. Like, that's something, that's an industry Japan has um, done a lot in their marketing over the years. It, it strikes me that possibly, possibly due to all of those reasons, like maybe cassettes took a back seat when you could get this brand new shiny product for emotional reasons, um, rather than necessarily just going for the cheaper option that's something to consider. Like I said, it's all hearsay based on some things I observed in like 2007. So who so who knows what the truth is on that? I certainly don't.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, I do know, I'm pretty sure that CD adoption in Japan was really rel- relatively quick. And I do know for almost a fact that Japan had a pretty good uptake of the uh, Laserdisc format, if you even don't know what those are. Those are they look like big, like record size CDs, and and what they were is they had video encoded on them, technically analog, unlike CDs that are digital, but that that had a big uptake in Japan compared to, like, in the West, where it was a very much a hi-fi format. It wasn't until DVDs came out in the late 90s and early 2000s that we got a, a disc video format that was big here in the West. But they definitely existed. Maybe they were more of a recording format, like they were uh, also. But maybe this this one movie was just big enough that it they decided to to make this. It wasn't made in huge quantities, I can tell you that much. But yeah, that I think that concludes the hipster portion of this discussion. <laughs> But uh, cassettes still exist, and by the way, I do bring them out to events. Once we start having those again, you can ask me for a promotional cassette, and I will actually have some of those along with CDs and flyers. But I did want to toss that one in there. That was kind of a a fun thing to to throw in here. All right, well, what is our next discussion? Well, like we said, this is the last Gen 3 side game, and usually between generations we like to do a little bit of a – A one-off or a different type of discussion. And so our next discussion before we start the Gen 4 side games is going to be... Hi folks. Due to some scheduling issues, we had to record our Secrets of the Jungle and Pokemon 25 The Album discussions first. So those will actually come out before Deconstructed Pokemon Songs. Deconstructed Pokemon Songs... So let me kind of explain what that is. Um, if you're watching this live, you can see a little bit of a, a, a plug-in control that I have in, in my uh, installation of Audacity. But basically what this is, what we're going to be doing is, uh, this has kind of been around for a while, but it gets it's gotten a little more advanced as time has gone on, is we're going to be using uh, software uh, to remove the vocals uh, that are like center panned in most tracks and sort of listening to some of the background elements and some of the backing elements of various things. We won't be able to play them on here, but it's something you can do at home if you have the right plugin uh, for this and just know a little bit about how to bring in audio there. But we're surely going to be listening to some of the background elements of various Pokémon songs. We'll probably be avoiding some of the ones that have commercially available karaoke tracks, which actually eliminates a fair bit of the Japanese side, which uh, <laughs> tends to do that much more than the English side. But we're going to sort of uh, see what we can find there. Uh, I've tried this with the number of ones. Some ones are more interesting than other, others. I have a few ideas of which ones I'd like to talk about. But Anne, you'll be able to, to pick out a few of yours as well. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. I don't know about, about you, Anne, but...
1: Uh, yeah, no, this is going to be fun. I've, I've already got some ideas percolating. So we'll see, we'll see which ones make the cut.
0: But yeah, that'll be our, our intergenerational discussion. Obviously, the first uh, side game of Gen 4 will be after that. I believe that's Pokémon Battle Revolution for the Wii. But uh, look forward to that. Until then, Anne, thank you very much for being on.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: This has been Steven Reich. All right, folks, thanks. Thanks for listening to the PokéPress Digest Podcast. We'd appreciate if you rate or review us on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokepress at gmail.com or follow at PokePress on Twitter. All right, well, time to talk about the game, Pokemon Ranger, in terms of like game mechanics and uh, some other things I've noted here. So if you've seen Rangers in other media, you know what they do is they have this thing called the Capture Styler, and you spin it around the Pokemon, and eventually you, you capture it, but not in the same sense that you do in the main series games. You have it at your disposal to use for various tasks in the game, either to help capture or calm other Pokemon, or to clear certain obstacles and stuff like that. And the overworld stuff tends to work fairly well, but the main difference mechanically between this and the other Ranger games is in this first entry, you have to get all the loops without picking up your stylus and if you accidentally hit the Pokemon or the Pokemon attacks your line or you accidentally lift up the stylus or whatever you're going back to start whatever the maximum count of loops you had to do is, and it's like you never made any progress at all, really. <laughs> And a lot of folks point that out as a, a major gameplay flaw. I don't know. Anne, was that – you said you sold this. Was that sort of your main <laughs> gripe mechanically with the game?
1: Yeah. Yeah, basically it was just – it was hard to play. Um, and I, I've actually was – just because I have those that light frustration associated with it, I, I've not actually tried the Ranger games, although I've heard they've improved that aspect significantly – But yeah, like, from a story point, I love the idea that there's a different way to interact with the Pokemon beyond just capturing them and battling them until they're weakened. Like, capture stylus is such a cool idea. And, like, at the time, for the DS, I hadn't played a lot of games that used the stylus. Like, you could use it to press a button or something, but it was almost more cumbersome to do that than just press the buttons on your game it was really just like this one game i think it was called drawn to life or something and then like the world ends with you and otherwise it was like why why does the touch screen even exist it's pointless so this was like the first game that i picked up where it's like well, not the first game but like one of the first games where i really felt like they they invented something that specifically like uses the stylus in, in some very cool ways and i was like oh this is so cool But over time, as I struggled and struggled um, to use it, it kind of outwore its welcome. So, yeah, eventually, like when it came time to, you know, sell the games on my shelf, that was the one that went because it's just it was so hard to replay.
0: Yeah, I kind of equate it to the game of football, uh, American football. So so not soccer, but uh, where instead of four downs to get to the the next first down marker, you only have one. And if you don't score, it's too bad. Um, there, are sometimes you can leverage circling a Pokemon once or twice to effectively stun it, and then starting a new loop. But yeah, that 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 is mechanically one of the, one of the more annoying things. There, there's a lot of other things. Like like I find that this this facet of it really complicates. Like whenever you have multiple Pokemon, you have to capture which does come up in the later games as well, but because you have to get all the circles around each individual Pokemon, you don't necessarily have to catch them all at once, but because they move around the board uh, a lot. Like, I watched a speedrun of this from someone who was much better at the game than I, and oftentimes the best strategy was to start circling the Pokemon immediately, as soon as you could, before they could start diverging apart. But Anne, I assume you found that, like me, those multi-Pokemon capture events were extraordinarily frustrating.
1: Yeah, I definitely feel like in some ways this game, like, like I've heard a lot of people criticize it for various reasons or, or like, they have bad memories of it. But I, f- I feel like a lot of that is maybe a bit blown out of proportion but, it, like, it doesn't necessarily deserve all its criticism, but, like, the fact that the stylus and the capture mechanism was so frustrating, I think, is a genuine turnoff to this game. And, like, y- like, some b- times you might scratch the screen, which, again, I had thought the problem with The World Ends With You, too, but that game was fun. Uh, <laughs> uh, th- but, yeah, this one. Like, there was, there's a lot about that, the just basically the basic capture mechanism that I think turned people off and, and left a sour taste.
0: You know, and then there were like, the poke assist, which can actually be quite useful. Like, in that ice cave, the Steelix battle, if you use a Sneasel that you can find in there, it doubles the length of your capture line. So it actually makes it, when the, when the Steelix is in a bit of a holding pattern during part of its movement, it makes it not, you know... It makes it considerably easier uh, to capture that particular Pokemon there, and that's probably the only way to do it. And, and speaking of the only way to do it, I did beat this game on the Wii U Virtual Console. I doubt I would ever have the patience to beat it on the original hardware, given how <laughs> difficult some of the later stuff in the game gets towards the end. I, I did manage when I went after I passed the point. I passed when I originally played the game on the the Wii U, and it wasn't as difficult as I remembered. It wasn't easy, but like, did I just get lucky? And I did go back and, and <laughs> beat that part on the uh, on the actual DS. But I, I know there's stuff by the end of the game that I was just kind of done with this. I, I like to say this may be, well be mechanically or physically the most difficult Pokemon game ever released. there there's probably a few <laughs> other contenders for that. but yeah, and, and there's a couple other frustrations folks have with the game that are not directly related to that. like there's an escort mission in this game where you have someone who is more afraid of bugs than anime Misty perhaps. Um, <laughs> you have to get through a couple screens of the Olive jungle. To get to some equipment uh, in there, and uh, there's no checkpoint. So if you at any point you get touched by a bug Pokemon, you have to go back to the entrance. Um, I did beat that part without suspend points. I needed to use the the suspend points in, in the Wii U Virtual Console to beat the game, but not that particular portion of it. Although I did seriously consider it. Um, there's also some other problematic areas in the game, like in one of the uh, in in the bad guys' hideout. There are some uh, tiles that turn on and off, and if you touch them when you're, they turn on, you get sent back to the entrance of that area, and that also has no checkpoints. But the further problem there is that some of these are tile things are long enough that you can't see the clearing at the other side, so you don't know. There's a pattern to them, but you can't see it all at once until you start going down through there. So this is a game I do definitely consider. It is beatable. Um, there are people who are quite good at it, but I would definitely say it crosses a line. I know, terrible, but um, into being too difficult for its own good in many places. And when that happens in a video game, there are a couple potential causes. In the like 80s and 90s, they would make games extra difficult so you couldn't beat them in a rental. There are documented cases of that. Um, I don't think that's what happened here. Other things that can happen, I wonder if the folks who, if there wasn't enough fresh play testing, like if the people who were actually developing the game and and testing and stuff just got really good at it and knowing where all the stuff was, and that sort of made it seem like it was okay and they just didn't get enough, or by the time they did, there wasn't enough time to fix or change stuff. That can sometimes happen. It's much more common, say, with like smaller development studios. So you'd think a, a a company like HAL or whatever would do that art, you know. And this is far enough into the DS they would have had maybe even some DS lights. Definitely, the original DS was well out, and they would have had uh, real world units to test this on, or something very close to it. I don't know, but I do think this game is overall too difficult for its own good. And really, the only reason I went back to it was for this playthrough. The other two games, (laughs) I would say start with one of those, quite honestly, from a difficulty perspective. And I think you haven't played either of the other two, it sounds like, or not very much.
1: I I haven't, just because, like, even though I know that they've improved some things, like, again, it's just, it's kind of like you only have so much money in your life to spend on video games and so much time to play them and remembering just, like... The first Ranger game was just so hard. It's kind of like one of those. What's like, well, some other time, it, some other payday. Yeah,
0: I do wonder if I had kept plugging on with this game, would I have soured myself so much that I wouldn't have played the other two games? Because I did. Like, I, I think I was considering avoiding like um, Shadows of Valmia, the second game, until I read that. They, yes, they had changed the mechanics, and this is better now. I thought, well. By then, I was actually out in the um, in the workforce and had disposable income, um, mm. so I could afford to buy it on my own dime, and it didn't seem like such a a risk <laughs> or such a uh, uh, whatever you want to call it there. But yeah, so let's let maybe we should talk about some of the uh, less infuriating aspects <laughs> of this game. First of all, we barely mentioned the evil team in this game, which is the Go Rock Squad, which, it, it's a bit of an odd relationship. There's, there's uh, the the bad, the older bad guy, and I, I guess he has like four kids, or whatever, or they're somehow related, I think, that are part of what's called the, Do- the Go Rock Quad, Q-U-A-D, and like their, like their dad or whatever, they're all musical, which is actually kind of cool. They have obviously their own theme song, but they also play instruments, that uh, they will whip out during, like, their, their text boxes when those are scrolling through. Um, and then they also have their their goons, the low-level goons that you have to fight through there. Um, fight is sort of, they'll put some sort of, some Pokemon for you to have to calm down or whatever with your styler. Um, what did you kind of think there?
1: I, yeah, I, I kind of, like the general idea of the of the Gorok squad, like the idea that they kind of wanna be seen as heroes by creating the danger that they then send save people from by like capturing the Pokemon and have like like have Entei attack a town and then they stop the Entei with their super styler and everyone's like, Oh, you've saved us. Like, I feel like I've read that comic a million times like I feel like it has been a booster gold comic at some point like so there's something about that that's very like kind of hilarious and, and appeals to me and, and I think fits very well into this world they're definitely like the evil people but like there's something about that just initial premise of meeting them on those terms that make them seem you know somehow a little less scary and and kind of I don't know, let, lets you just, again, have a different experience in the Pokemon world beyond just the big bad guys are going to capture Pokemon and take over the world um, experience. Like, again, there's just, there's a lot in this game that is very unique and and fresh.
0: Yeah. And obviously, the, the name kind of works and it kind of doesn't because the, obviously the go rock, because the, like, there's a couple guitarists, there's a violinist, electric violin or whatever, and a drummer in the in the in the four admins or whatever it is, but of course the name is also kind of simultaneously quite bad um, <laughs> because of course in in Pokemon go, we have team go rocket is the name of of team rocket in that game, so <laughs> I don't know that for sure they're trying to erase it. I kind of doubt that, <laughs> but um <laughs> they are an interesting set of characters, and this is not the last time we will see them, although it will be the last time we see them. As villains, And it's, it's kind of interesting because they the, – especially like the four uh, Go Rock quad members are – they're kind of – not all musicians are like this. In fact, many of them are, are quite nice people, but they actually are kind of pretentious as well <laughs> um, in some of their dialogue about um, – <laughs> and they feel a little underappreciated at times. They've got some very interesting stuff. That's one of the best things I can say about this game is, is some of their their dialogue is, is quite interesting. I guess we can talk a little bit about the post-game content after you beat the main game. It isn't quite as uh, as big as like the mystery dungeon games or even the main series games. There's apparently I didn't bother with this because I had kind of lost interest after beating the main game. But you can capture like <laughs> uh, there's there's a mew you can capture. Um, there's also actually online features that are unlocked like this. You know. Tying into the to the ninth movie, there's a way you can get uh, the online stuff doesn't work anymore, of I course, like, yeah, uh, because the this is the old Nintendo Wi-Fi connection that went through the the DS and the original Wii, but uh, you could get a Manaphy off of that, and uh, eventually once once uh, Diamond and Pearl came out, you could transfer those over that way. I never had a chance because I never beat the game when I originally had to play the online missions. I did play some of them for at least one of the later two games um, that also had that type of stuff there. But uh, actually, to be honest, I read some reactions on some of the post-game stuff, and some people were were ticked off about some of that, too. That apparently is even more difficult than some of the stuff in the main game, so... <laughs> I don't know. The,
1: the Manaphy mission? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'm not sure how far you got into any of that, Anne. Uh,
1: I did not beat the game. I never yeah. got anywhere near that egg. I wanted it so bad. Well,
0: well the good news at the time was that some, one of the later games did give you another chance to get a Manaphy there, as did some special events. So, yeah. <laughs> And you know, we mentioned it wasn't just the movie. There was uh, also some tie-ins in the anime for this and some of the later games. There's also, I guess, a manga for this first one here. Um, that ties in. So not unlike Mystery Dungeon, as a side game, they really pushed this. Yeah, uh, Mystery Dungeon seems to have paid off a little bit better, perhaps because that was had fewer design issues. I mean, obviously, it's hard to see what you would do with this game without a touchscreen. But, you know, I mean, like I said, this is on the Wii U Virtual Console. The Switch has a capacitive touchscreen, and there are touchscreen-only games for the Switch. So it's not as if they couldn't bring this back. But I think it never quite reached the heights of the mystery dungeon games in terms of reception and stuff like that. But we'll talk. We'll talk more about that when we cover the other two games in this series. But I did want to point out that they did make a legitimate push. Um, which you know, going back to the difficulty issues, I do wonder if a, a game with this frustration factor were released today, would we have gotten the sequels in the social media era? Um, and I'm I'm kind of wondering about that, but. Perhaps that's a discussion for another time. And any other thoughts on on this game itself or anything else about it?
1: Yeah, I mean it's hard to say as to what you just said about like whether it would have gotten the push in the social media era. It's hard to say, but like I definitely know that to this day, probably because of the marketing push that they did, like when I hear Pokemon Ranger, like my first thought isn't oh, gosh, that game that was so hard to play. Like, that's my second thought. My first thought is, oh, cool. Like, they they really worked hard to kind of make, like, this idea of Pokemon Rangers and this different way of interacting with Pokemon and this different idea and approach to catching Pokemon and, like, what they did. And, like, they made that very cool. And, like, so, you know, Pokemon Ranger and the Temple of the Sea, like, that title kind of evoked in me like oh my gosh we're gonna see the rangers like when that um the episodes that two-parter special in advance where i think it's solana one of the rangers shows up like again that feeling of like oh cool the rangers like so there there was a huge push for this idea that they could then spin off into many different directions and i definitely think that has paid off for them and probably is a concept that they might be able to circle back to one of these days, I think.
0: And we'll see if they do anything with it. Uh, I think we'll have more thoughts as we get to Shadows of Almia and Guardian Signs over the next year or so to say there. But yeah, so I guess this is one of those ones where it kind of survived its first incarnation (laughs) and we did get something better down the line. I, I will say that play one of the two other games and, and, The other thing I would say when we get to those, uh, don't play both of those other two games back-to-back. They'll feel pretty redundant. You'll get more out of whatever one you play last um, if you space them out a bit, maybe as we're going through this. (laughs)
1: Hmm. Okay, okay.
0: Yeah, a little bit of history. I I suppose you had mentioned that you had bought cassettes because they were cheaper, which was definitely true here in the States as well. I know we also had cassettes here for a while. It's because it was pretty uncommon to have a car... That could have a CD player uh, for well into the 90s. I'm trying to think when our family finally got one. It might have been towards the end of the 90s. And prior to that, we still had a a car that had a cassette player. And I had one while I was in college that had a cassette player, although you had those little uh, headphone jack to cassette adapters. they still make for stuff like if you have a really old car <laughs> and you need to connect like your <laughs> right. phone to it <laughs> to play music. I don't know, Anne. Did you have any any other cassette memories you wanted to share here? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I'm just now. I'm thinking like, when was the last time I could buy a CD player that didn't also have a cassette deck? Like, I'm trying. I'm like, I'm trying to remember the exact moment in my life where like the cassettes phased out. Because, like I said, I, I was a cheap person who always bought things secondhand. So like, I held on to those that. Lifestyle for a long time.
0: Well, I, I even – because digital voice recorders didn't become affordable until well into the zeros for field interviews, I often used a portable cassette recorder up through right. about 2005, 2006. Like if you want to look back at my channel, my interview with Elliot Sloan from Blessed Union of Souls um, was recorded on cassette. Um uh, I think that's the only one of the few ones from the the pre uh YouTube era that I've bothered to put on there. Just cuz that was kind of an important one as you can kind of imagine. I was just fortunate that they did a concert at my at my college and I was able to get an interview with Elliot which was really a lot of fun. Um but that is actually recorded on cassette tape. Uh, a year or so later I would finally get one of those uh digital voice recorders which didn't even go up to full C D quality, but eventually sort of worked <laughs> my way up from there.
1: Nuts, right? Yeah, I had a portable portable voice recorders for my acting stuff and it was it was on cassette because that one was way cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs>
0: Yeah, usually the way things go when they go digital is that at the very beginning of the digital uh, rollout, the digital version is much more expensive. But in the end, the, the digital one ends up becoming cheaper or about as cheap as the analog was in its heyday. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know... <laughs>